David A. Price presents... Hello folks, welcome to Marvel Noise episode 419. I'm your host, Steve Raker, down in the comic book bunker, pounding salt after missing my first Baltimore Comic Con in almost 15 years. Phooey. Parker luck sometimes, you know? Marvel Noise is the semi-monthly podcast proudly sponsored by Nobody. Our scope is all things Marvel with a particular fondness for and fascination with the Bronze Age. You can find, listen to, stream, and download episodes past and present over on marvelnoise.com. There's that handy little calendar-style drop-down menu on the right-hand side that you can use to easily navigate past months and years. You can get new episode announcements, give us feedback, and see images and cover galleries on our Facebook and Twitter pages, and find other fine podcasts curated by our government liaison, Derek Howard and his Deliberate Noise Network including Indie Comic Book Noise, our sister show, where we talk indie comics. And we're coming up to our 10-year anniversary on that show. Hard to believe. This episode, Whirlwind X Kevin and Andrew the L.A. Rabbit will be on to offer up a selection of done-in-one tales from Marvel's vast publishing history, as well as cover the courtroom drama the 1990s are remembered for, The Trial of Venom. But first, it's customary for the host to share a recent read recommendation or two before getting on to the feature segments. So here goes. I read the new Doctor Strange series. We talked about issue number one on one of our recent, recent, recent read roundtables. But I read the rest of the series up to the current issue number seven that's out on the stands as of the time of this recording. And Doctor Strange is written by Jed McKay, with art, for the most part, by Pascal Ferry, with Alex Ross painted covers. Now, issue number two has Strange and Clea traveling to the Nightmare Realm to rescue the soul of a bedridden child. And it's a favor to Moon Knight, McKay's other book, one of them at least, so that's kind of cool. Issue three shows us an annual parlay day where Dormammu visits Doctor Strange and there's a promise of no hostilities. They catch up, walk in the park, play chess, get Chinese food. I mean, there's more to it than that, including a clever ending, but it was a good way to kind of just stop the world and catch readers up on who Doc is, what his relationships to people are, where he's been and all that. Issue number four featured fill-in art and it felt like a fill-in issue, focusing on Wong, Doctor Strange's both mystically and physically proficient servant. He makes a heck of a cup of tea, too. And Wong's new status quo as an agent of wand, you know, period after each letter. It's basically shield for mystical threats. But there's only three or four of them. And they've got, like, all the S.H.I.E.L.D.-type equipment and underwater armor and tech, and it's a bit too much. There are some hints that their agenda and Strange and Clea's will eventually put them at odds with each other. But I would, you know, rather ignore this whole angle. In issue 5, Ferry is back on art, and we're treated to Doc and Clea attending the wedding of Clea's mother, Umar, to the two-bit sorcerer despot, Tyburo, with Umar's brother, the Dread Dormammu, presiding. Now, in this one, there are definitely some entertaining moments as Strange and Clea, you know, like, make witty, sarcastic comments to each other, you know, like as a couple might do at someone's wedding, either criticizing or editorializing and stuff. And all hell breaks loose as the issue ends with an attack and a big cliffhanger. Issue 6 has terrific retro fill-in art by Juan Gedeon, and is a flashback interlude-type issue. I mean, after all these years, we finally get the story of the War of the Seven Spheres, 
which was first mentioned in Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme 48 and 49 back in October and November of 1992, which was the first post-Roy Thomas issue on the title. It was written by sometimes editor Len Kaminsky, with art by Jeff Isherwood, who had been the artist on the title for a while at the, at the end of Roy's run. And it had Doc renouncing his ability to call upon the magics of the Vashanti and other mystical deities over his refusal to serve in their 5,000-year war of the Seven Spheres. And, I mean, it essentially depowered him by cutting him off from the sources of his usual invocations, you know? Even the title of 49 was Sorcerer Supreme No More. After the Midnight Suns era of Doctor Strange with David Quinn writing and the art by Mel Ruby and Peter Gross with the Upper East Side John Lennon spectacles look. Remember that run? Well, the creative team Status Quo and Doc's look would all get a reboot in July of 1995 with writer Warren Ellis and artist Mark Buckingham in issue 80. And that issue opens with Strange returning from fighting in the Seven Spheres War for the Vashanti for tens of thousands of years. And he's now returning four months after he left, unaged. You know, thanks to the magic of the Vashanti. So him agreeing to fight in that war and the war itself all happened off-panel between issues and creative teams. So now, in the current series' issue 6, the story can finally be told. All in one ish, too, which is pretty convenient. But it's a story nearly 30 years in the making, which is kind of cool. Ferry is back on art with issue number 7, which picks up on the cliffhanger from the interrupted wedding at the end of issue 5, with the reader now informed, thanks to the fill-in issue 6, I don't want to say too much more because I'm not going to spoil what the nature of the thread is here, but it's a doozy, and it'll be quite a test for both the Doc and Clea. I think this has been a fine Doctor Strange series so far, from the covers... I mean, Alex Ross doing the covers, how cool is that? Uh, to the content. Ferry's not my favorite artist, um, but it is decent. I mean, I don't really like his faces overall, but it's good here. Uh, it makes for a kind of otherworldly animated kind of style at times, but um, yeah, his line weight is always so thin around the... Ah, whatever, but it's good. Good enough. <laughs> So by the toilet rings of Ragador, the Doc is back. And with Clea, which I like. Just fix the Wong wand angle. Uh, that was weird to say. Okay, time to get Andrew and Kevin on to hit some done and once. All right, Andrew is here. Andrew, what's your favorite pair of Marvel buddies? Like Marvel bromance. What's the best duo? Well, I'd have to say Super Steve and Whirlwind X. Oh, hey. Wow. <laughs> In the books. <laughs> I like a, there's a, you can't be a good buddy team up. I mean, I it goes the K and LA Rabbit goes the gamut from Captain America and the Falcon to Batman and Robin. They're all winners. What's your favorite? Come on, give me one. Give me I don't know. What is my favorite? I'm trying to put you put, putting you on the spot. That is a a good I guess Power Man and Iron Fist maybe. Uh, that, is that too silly? No, that was probably that's probably mine too. All right. And Kevin's here. Kevin, favorite here. favorite favorite pair of Marvel buddies. I mean, that's the first thing that popped into my head is Power Man and Iron Fist. Really? Nope. Not Punisher Daredevil? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's 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 a intense relationship there. Well, well they got Cloak and Dagger. They're pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wonder Man and the Beast, right? Wolverine and Nightcrawler? Rogue and Gambit? <laughs> well, they're kind of what? more of an item, aren't they? They're married. How about like Rick Jones and Marvell? They were kind of buddies. Rick Jones mm. and a lot of people. Not a big Rick Jones guy, if I'm being honest. You're not a fan of the ham radio? 
Oh, I liked his teen brigade. Don't get me wrong. I just thought he took all the credit for them, you know. <laughs> all right, so that's a three for three, Power Man and Iron Fist. <laughs> I knew I liked you guys. All right, how about a few done in ones? Just one round, though. You know, so we're done well, in one. My, mine kind of skirted the line because you you know how some uh, how some comics are done. Even apparently in the the late nineties, mid nineties, there like the issues don't really stop; they just continue going. So even Dunner ones are you can't tell, but there's still <laughs> like a last page or something that leads into the next issue. So would you pick? I picked at your suggestion, Super Steve, one of the books of which I have several low grade copies of. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it is a Thunderbolt's first appearance issue. And by the particular Thunderbolt, I mean it is someone who has about four panels and three bits of dialogue, I think. So it's classic. So, is it really a first appearance then? It sounds like yes. a Wolverine or Gambit deal or something. No, I mean she's in it more than um like I said, it's a few <laughs> panels. It's a she she talks and is talked to. It's What's particularly funny is its positioning. It's right before Kirby's return to Captain America. So it's kind of a a fun, weird issue. It's a Captain America and the Falcon 192. So because of that positioning. The cover doesn't tell you how crazy the insides are. Yeah. Because you're you're expecting. I mean, it's, it's not super switcheroo, but I was like, oh, yeah, it's Robin's. His yeah. last, his last cap. And as uh, Super Steve knows, Big Frank, for me, he's one of the top Captain America <laughs> artists. And it's uh, D. Bruce Barry on inks. And uh, somehow, weirdly enough, while Marv Wolfman was writer and editor, he somehow lured Michelle Wolfman <laughs> to do the colors. <laughs> wonder how difficult it was to convince her to pick up a couple extra bucks doing this. I totally understand why some people don't like Frank Robbins. Having imprinted on him at a young age, I enjoy his impossible anatomy and body positioning. To me, it's <laughs> when you're a kid, that's quintessential comics. Now I can see someone who came up in the modern times being like, no, no, it should look like a real picture of something. Yeah. Almost like a storyboard or something. But I enjoyed the fantastical nature of comics where there's, you would not want to film this with human beings. Like no. it would look like a horror movie. With well, what arms it is, and limbs. It, it took weird me, to me. It took me a long time to decode it, but what he does is you, the distortions bend with the motion, right? So it's like it's his way of showing motion, not using speed lines. He he yeah. makes the characters bend in this impossible way and reach around and kick a guy in the face like that crosses over your own body's midline, which would be impossible to do. But he's showing what he's showing the time. You know what I mean? He's like showing a few snaps, a few frames in one frame, but he's choosing not to go with the showing the translucent series of figures moving through the it's just his way of doing that but what i never liked was um his faces i just it, mm. but there are some great panels in here the 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 last splash with the the back shot of cap there's some really nice stuff in here i've come to appreciate robins a lot more than i did as as a kid yeah i, I wonder I'm if i'm more used to it the more robins i See, it's like you're reading 90s X-Men and then they they throw Frank Whiteley at you. You're just like, what is happening? Like that Steve Rogers on the first page, it looks like he's about to fall over. <laughs> I Like I said, I, I get why. I just think as a little kid, for some reason, it was very comic booky in a way. Oh, Plus, yeah. we're it's... still in the area, era of outlandish designs and fantastic colors. For sure. And... And that just as a kid was like, wow, this this is what got me excited more about comic books than some of the other types of stuff. But I don't know. What are you going to do? Like some of the stuff we don't have a rational attachment to. We just. Like dug it as kids. 
and now we're here trying to suss it out. He's and, pretty uh, cartoony. Like as soon as like I didn't immediately grab on to that. I was just like, oh, it seems fine. But then as soon as Carla shows up, I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, the Thunderbolt here is Carla Soffin, and she is a henchwoman working for a pretty goofy supervillain who I didn't ever, I don't know, Dr. Faustus. I would say finish your thought on him, though. You never, what, your thumbs up or thumbs down? I like it, but I can't think, if you were to ask me what's the quintessential Dr. Faustus story that I would suggest to someone, I don't know that I have one. Does Does there have to be one? Well, I mean, I do like, as you know, the large gentleman. And Dr. Faustus is a big looking, think of the stereotypical Freudian psychologist, <laughs> always smoking and goofy glasses and facial hair and just ridiculously oversized. Like that part I like. And his relatively nebulous powers were still in that 70s where they don't always define everything. So if a character needs an ability or a power, right. maybe it shows up, maybe it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So he can manipulate people. And it's just perfect for over-the-topness, but I don't know if I have a... I'd be curious to see... Maybe I should look up the top 10 Dr. Faustus comic books to see. Is there a quintessential Serpent Society story? Yeah, I feel like that 80s run when he was... uh, And Cap, and then... uh, Which was the one, Diamondback, that ended up falling for Cap? Yeah, yeah, there's there's some pretty... Yeah, there's some pretty big... uh... There's 80s. a lot of there's a lot of good for these recurring villains who are in the characters, um, uh, you know, rogues gallery. Um, you know, it's hard to uh, this when he pops up. It's always a curveball, right? And um, like I thought it was cool the way Brew Baker yes. used, used him, right, with the whole skull thing being uh, in that uh, Russian general or arms dealer's head or whatever that whole i forget the details but i remember faustus being pretty interesting uh throughout that run and used in a nostalgic neat way but back in the day back in the bronze age he would just pop up now and again and it would be like oh that's why this is everything is seems really weird he's a mysterio type villain where you know what i mean everything isn't the way it supposed to be um i think there's a great two-parter with daredevil and cap the one with the second issue of the two issues has uh daredevil flying the plane which (laughs) you never want daredevil flying the plane and it's on fire and cap is like on the wing it's like a biplane or something like that but uh there's some there's some fun fastest stories i like when he shows up because he's just a big fat criminal psychologist psychiatrist type right and in that respect and i think it lends to the authenticity of this being moon dragon carla sofin's first real appearance for sure is that it makes sense for the character that carla became right to the core of her character that she would get her start working with faustus i mean that makes a lot of sense they're both criminal psychologist psychiatrist types yeah and she certainly fits in but the quick plot summary is captain america is worried about previous issue reveals about the falcon and can he trust him blah blah moody cap (laughs) everyone always likes a moody cap who's either talking about his man out of time or his whatever the current thing is brooding handsomely and he's like i gotta get out of here so i'm using my priority access shield badge to jump a plane what so he no more flying he, coach yeah but what <laughs> i like about the badge is there's no real identification just as priority access and a little shield so i would think there'd be counterfeit issues but anyways he gets on a <laughs> private plane and the private plane is some kind of crazy flying gangster collection and we're talking every type of pinstripe suit sunglasses cigars the full crazy over the top and carla is the assistant to faust's as he said collecting all the guns and we find out that cap stumbled upon faustus's plan to 
take over Manhattan with his audio signal that will drive people crazy. Because as noted, he is good with that, that kind of the psychological as his milieu. And so Cap has some funny interactions with the other patrons as Steve Rogers and then goes into the bathroom and let me tell you, I wish I could fly these early 70s planes that had plenty of room in the bathroom for you to change into a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> they shoot this today and he'd have to get changed somewhere else. <laughs> and then, you know, kicks butt, gets zapped with the ray, shakes it off, fights Faustus. We find out you do not want guns on a plane. because One of the <laughs> idiot gangsters blows a hole in it and... Faustus goes right out the window. It's <laughs> an awesome panel. Wow, <laughs> there he goes. But it looks like he has a plan almost. because It's like he has his arms up. He's like, I got to do the Superman pose. Yeah, this could be the death of Faustus. I don't I Maybe I need a graded copy to see if it qualifies. I like the whole but, thing of Cap having like fighting in a contained yes. environment like that on the airplane. I thought that was a lot of fun, especially for a done in one ish. And for a guy like me who likes the kind of crazy Robbins business, it's fun to see all that too. Because that it it lends itself even crazier when you see a guy twisted into a pretzel in a tiny between a bunch of uh, rows and suits and everything. I also love at one point Cap does a spin on what appears to be a adult performer pole that's <laughs> mounted in the middle of the plane, and it's just funny. And then. Cap is able to one of the few guys left. So he's the gang. He's like the gangsters. You guys can shoot me or you can have me land the plane. And we all save them land the plane. Yeah. Cap signals to the ground control. It's flight nine one one. It's trouble. And so they're there to arrest all the gangsters. And then it ends with a very nice three quarter splash of cap in a very seedy New York city. <laughs> And the announcement that Kirby's coming. Letter pages were filled with, you know, the king is back. Everyone was excited. It was a real, it seems like that would have been a fun time. I was not reading these, or if I was not well enough to know and dial into that excitement. But I think it would have been fun, you know, to be there and be like, oh my gosh, the king. You know, if you were a bit older and had more of a feel for Jack. To see him return to Marvel seemed like kind of a cool thing. Just in time for the bicentennial. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, when Kirby comes in, he's not picking up the threads of what happened to Faustus. No. <laughs> it's going to be his own mad bomb and all the fun stuff. I think, Steve, you and I talked about some of that stuff. Yep. My first Marvel Noise segment was a 4th of July Captain America with Super Steve. So, Episode 200. Uh, here we are. Yes, I better put this back in its bag and board, gentlemen. This very valuable low-grade copy of Captain America <laughs> 92 to add to the collection. All right, Kevin, give us the 90s Daredevil. All right, I what know, I know. more 90s Daredevil, but this is the other half of 90s Daredevil. So I don't, I don't know what you're you are really expecting. I mean, this isn't that. Uh, this is like the return of my solo segments where I covered some Daredevil issues. Andrew's like, when are you going to do more of those? So here's another one. Except instead of two people for the for the last time, it's three people this time. But we have uh, Carl Kiesel, Kerry Nord, Matt Ryan. So this is uh, this is one of those underrated runs. Real real gem issues here, I I would say. You have uh, oh, one of those Kevin, uh, 3D... I don't know if I can agree with you on this. Much like Frank Robbins is not working for you, this team did not necessarily hit my sweet spot. Well, I think they're pretty expressive, I feel like the faces are a little bit soft at times. The woman that purports to be Foggy's mom looks the same age as Karen Page. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I just feel there's... like that... That Maybe sort of detail. Like, um, after this, it's some more Gene Colan. So I don't know. Like it's, Ooh, Gene Colan. It, like it, it's still Carl Kiesel. So I mean, if you, this doesn't do anything for you, I mean, I hope the the rest of this run would. Well, I, and I like like the action scenes are fun and everything. It's just it's a Daredevil book, so 
its roots are in romance comics, so there's always going to be a lot of talking heads. And it's the, the talking, talking head stuff, which I like, but I feel in this instance, I don't know. I think it would work better now that the colorist does more of the heavy lifting. And those faces well, would probably get a lot more work under a modern colorist. There is something I wanted to bring up here, too, because I was looking at it on the Unlimited. And when you zoom in real close, it almost looks like that. I don't know how... how People like they even know about this stuff because I even noticed myself like I used to scan a lot of things in, and you know that like checkered pattern you would get sometimes. More, <laughs> more a whatever. You yeah. Say. So I mean, I usually I take pictures of things now instead of scanning things in, like or just go online onto Unlimited or whatever. Like I don't like which is good because I'm like that was kind of a labor intensive nuisance thing but it's like that was that's what you did so when i zoomed in on some of these faces and and stuff it's like you could almost see it and then i was like let me check the issue i'm like it's still there and i even broke out of like a a magnifying glass and i'm like it's there but when you zoom in so close it's 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 like picking up that so it's i'm like i don't think it's them putting the issues on a on unlimited and that being a problem it's just when you're going so into how this is done it's weird that it it brings out that like i couldn't see that but once you zoom in you can see it it's it's one of those <laughs> so weird things like however they were coloring or if the artist is drawing like adding that like it's 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 weird like i don't know maybe it's because of um they're still getting used to the like it's not bad like like when they first discovered a computer or Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> like that's about that's like maybe ten issues earlier when they do a letters page and they put like an image behind the letters and you can't even read the letters page because you're like there's an image behind the text, guys. It's like you can't read that. <laughs> but yeah, there's some weird weirdness going on with that was i thought was interesting because i didn't expect to see anything i mean if i would have just read the issue i get maybe i would have never noticed but yeah i, mean, I also read I it on the zooming in on these comics right you you see all these things in the nooks and crannies that you were never supposed to see i i i don't have the floppy so i was uh unlimiting this i mean i had the the first appearance of carla of course but this <laughs> uh the 1200th appearance of the absorbing man or whatever the no, unique it, distinction is i'll i'll tell you the reason why i love this story it's because it takes place like during that weird like heroes reborn type of heroes you know that you know you had the heroes reborn they're gone the heroes leave and then the heroes come back also that thunderbolts type of time too they're taking advantage of the that era if there's if like, there's no Thor and no Hulk, who who stops the absorbing man? Exactly. So it's like Daredevil really isn't is gonna have a good time, and he's really he should not be fighting the absorbing man. And he mentions like other fights he's had, yeah. like oh he's taking on the Hulk. Like yeah, the best you the can Hulk. hope for is a draw. He fought Ultron. Like the absorbing man is actually kind of a lower tier guy for Daredevil. <laughs> With all wow. his powers. <laughs> so yeah it's like the absorbing man is like absorbing all these different things in here and then daredevil being the smart cookie that he is he's just like once the absorbing man is like a diamond he's like well yeah you're strong and you're gonna cut me up and everything but how do you think they cut diamonds it's like he figures out all the angles and everything and then the absorbing man's like i'm missing an arm <laughs> it's so great I like their characterization too. When Absorber Man first shows up, he's just, you know, a real ugly, mean kind of classic Kirby villain. But they sort of gave him a bit of sense of humor over the years. So he has some fun with his absorbing and does a prank where he turns into paper so he can get shot. Yes. And lots of, lots so of, weird. I, I like that rather than having him just be angry and mean and all that. I do prefer this Absorbing Man to the other one but yeah it was uh it's fun to see him 
like I said, why they always give these guys to Daredevil, Ultron, and all that makes me think that maybe those villains aren't the toughest we are. But I did like the return to the romance roots with all the stuff with Foggy and Karen and Foggy's mom? Question mark. Yeah, I know that's so weird because that was like an on, ongoing story here where you're you're just like, oh, she offered a Nelson and Murdoch a deal, and but she's like really annoying sometimes. <laughs> and then Karen has a job, and you're and if you look at the letters of like the radio station, you're like, Wilson Fisk. I'm like, he must own a lot of properties and places, right? You would think so. so. Just to wash the, even if they don't make money, he needs a bunch yeah. of funds for all his criminal stuff. So I, I like, yeah, I love all those sort of subplots like percolating in the background and everything. And I'm just like, yeah, more of that. I need to see. Although it seems to go against a little bit of the done in one nature of this exercise, Kevin. But we'll allow it. Well, it's up to Super Steve. <laughs> It it is it is a done in one, because there is, like yeah, it's inter, like things are introduced and it's a continuing story. But this is the story that you find out about Foggy's mom. Yeah, so, I mean that's that's one of the main attractions too. So I'm like, what is going on with her? You're always wondering, and like this is the like that that individual story about that thing, even though it, it is a continuing thing. That's clearly a subplot. Yes. Yeah, and hey, then had this the, comic come out in the fifties, Steve, that would have been the main plot. <laughs> and it's and if you want to see another cool three pot parter, it's uh, next issue had a Black Widow thing with some. Uh, I think it's the um, I don't know if it's a full team. But it's like the, the Russian super team. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It worked out okay for me, except the half-page splash where a diamond solid absorbing man does a overhead double-fisted smash in a Daredevil's chest, which I'm like, I'm pretty sure that would have killed Daredevil at that point. <laughs> I mean, I know he cracked a rib or whatever, but I feel yeah, like yeah, he, that blow a was a, a, a fatal one. Like that's I don't know how he's surviving that, but it looks great. There's lots of thracoom and all that stuff. So that part I think would be a fun. Yeah, always curious with this as the colorists are starting to do more lifting. Because there is some, you know, gradation in his armor and his diamond form and all these other ones. And some of the background has those patterns you were talking about. I'm kind of curious if it's just I'm I'm assuming blank white pages, right? For the original art. Have you seen any of these pages, Kevin? No. I would have bought some of these pages if I would have saw some of these in person probably back in the day. I mean, when I picked up the Thunderbolts page, I'm like, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, I need that. <laughs> I thought you would have mentioned something about criminals being a superstitious and cowardly lot, how they start this issue. And I'm like, I really don't remember. And I don't even know at the time I read this. I knew that it was totally like you know a thing they always have with Batman. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Sometimes the homages can miss the point if they don't know that it, you know if you're not familiar with it. But by this point, there hadn't been 47 Batman <laughs> movies in 10 years or whatever. So yeah, and I don't know if I would had watched much of the cartoon. I mean, I probably saw some of it, but. I mean, I remember the, the like the first time I, I sort of watched that and I didn't take to it right away. All right. For my done in one, I went back to February 1981 when I was a wee 10 year old for Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 54, which I remember picking up off the shelf. It's got a really cool Frank Miller, Walt Simonson cover. That's a nice pairing, right? where Spidey's fighting these samurai warriors who were wielding swords, and he's partially in samurai gear, too, as if he was in disguise among them and found out. And it's all against a black background. It's it's a great cover, isn't it? It I don't is. Know I... why it entirely, it entirely doesn't do it for me. I don't know why. I think for me is I really <laughs> also like the interior art 
but I feel like there's a complete mismatch. Like they're both great, but they're both so oh. different. The Severin Mooney, like to me, they do a great job of that's what Peter Parker looked like, like when he's in Peter Parker mode. Sure. And that's kind of what Spider it just was one of these I, I love it when they're sort of as much as I like idiosyncratic, I also love it when they're super on model. And to me, I'm like, whoa, that's Spider Man. Like, you just look at it and that's Spider Man, where now I feel like that sort of on model is completely gone. So everyone's Spider Man probably looks radically different. And maybe no one's like, you know, I still like the Ditko Spider Man, which is different and all that. But this yeah. is one of those ones where you're like, oh, yeah, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider Man. This is, even though, yeah. you know, there's no, where's, where's Sal? Huh? This, this run of, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man during this time had all uh, different cover artists than the interior, which is unusual for the time. It's a, you, you usually got the same artist, but Miller did a lot of covers, uh, Spider-Man covers for this run. And uh, there were a lot of Ed Hannigan covers and there was some really good stuff here. And I, I, I love Miller's stuff at, during this time, whether it was doing covers for Rom or this or... Hulk, Fantastic Four, a whole bunch of things. And Hannigan stuff, uh, that's like burned into my brain. Marvel team up. Good. No one's passing up a Frank Miller cover, Steve, if you get a chance. But (laughs) as you said, Andy, the uh, interiors, actually the plot, pencils, and colors are all from Mirthful Marie Severin. And the script is by Roger Stern, who was the regular writer of the book, taking a break this issue so marie could do her thing and the inks were by jim mooney who was also a regular on the book either as a penciler or an anchor and spidey thinks he's stopping bad guys chasing an ambulance so but it turns out to be the cops he stopped he lifts this giant metal plate up out of the street and and the vehicle he just allows to crash into it like this big hole it's pretty pretty brutal actually because you know, Andrew, not everyone wore seatbelts back then. That wasn't the thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's um, also the classic the classic Spider-Man. Like, he goofs up in the beginning and gets on the wrong side because he's thinking he's helping and he's hurting, and then he's got to go dig himself out of the hole he created. In this case, literally. Yep. What and, a I mean, the other thing is there weren't airbags in every sedan back then either, so he really could have killed these guys. But he's trying to make things right, so he tries to chase down the ambulance who's speeding away with a prisoner that they have, uh, uh, you know, like kidnapped and who was a potential witness against the uh, Magia. I like how it's Mafia, but Ma- they just took the F and made it the next letter G. <laughs> Okay, for, I always the, went Magia, but yeah. I have no idea what the right thing is, Steve. Well, with Maf- one of those ones I like because I love the... Magia. I think it has to be the Mafia. Ma- I guess it could be Magia. Because I always well, thought your kid brain goes Magia. Yeah, I thought I I, I was so so on them, but I loved their dreadnoughts. Like those were my <laughs> favorite kind of criminal weapon because they were just these cool robots that they had, and I'm like. Yeah, why wouldn't a criminal enterprise have a bunch of killer robots? And the potential witness against the Magia here is Power Man. Not Luke Cage. Power Man Eric Jostin, who would later be Atlas with the Thunderbolts. So that's fun. And You guys are such Thunderbolts fans. We, what I like is that he's still wearing his outfit, even though he was sprung from wherever, <laughs> yeah. whatever jail or testifying like there's like the thought that he wears that under his clothes all the time you know how it works in arkham asylum you get to wear your costume (laughs) that's the deal but i don't i don't know if you want to give doc ock his arms though i mean those those early early spider-man issues i'm like wow they're extremely lax dude he just calls them from across town they like walk across town and break (laughs) rip open the bars and break spring them free and but what's cool is we get a couple of pages devoted to Justin's history here. Like this is a kind of a major appearance for him, even though it's a minor one, because they kind of really catch you up to who this dude is. Can I give you my minor pet peeve, Steve? And you can probably Go guess what it. it is. I really, they start out doing this perfectly. And I'm like, yes, I love this. They're perfect with the editor notes. And then they just drop off. Now in today's world, 
I can look up that it's Avengers 164 is when Count Nefaria hires him. But I'm like, you had all these notes and then you just stop somewhere. <laughs> like, I guess that's enough. Because that's, I mean, I'm sure Kevin has that one memorized because he's on the cover as part of the Lethal Legion in that one. You know, his shirtless form, that is. <laughs> and I was like, oh, because I went and read that. But I was just miffed that I'm like, come on, you have half these have the notes already. Like, just put in Avengers 164 to 166 or whatever. And you can, and that way, if you're really a big fan, you can go read the, you know, you have the footnotes to the other ones. I have that. I have Avengers 21 too, Kevin, a, a pork, a very ripped up copy of that yeah. too for us. Yeah, below grader for that too. Spidey follows the lead, the old book of matches, guys. <laughs> and he's led to a floating Japanese restaurant. He well, fought. you know, wait till they find out when that, that, you can build that on top of your skyscraper. Like they're gonna be blown <laughs> away. I, I was I couldn't not think about this. I'm like, how crazy is this thing? The other thing I liked is instead of just looking at the matchbook and remembering it, he t- removes it from the crime scene so the cops can't find it. <laughs> like he could have just looked and said, Oh, it's this restaurant, and leave it so the cops might have the evidence they need to, you know, go after the bad guys, but or match like, the fingerprint the or the DNA once he does catch the guy, you know? That could be what matches him to the... Yeah. Pun intended, what matches him to the crime scene. So he finds Jostin all chained up. He gets caught impersonating the samurai and has to fight three others. So it's, you know, I love it when what happens on the cover happens inside the book. And it's by a different artist and what happens on the cover happens inside the book. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. Who doesn't want to see Spider-Man in his Spider-Man outfit in another outfit? It's those nested disguises <laughs> that are always... But it's a samurai. Who doesn't class. love samurai Spider-Man, rock and roll yeah. Spider-Man, uh, you know, kung fu Spider-Man, uh, caveman Spider-Man? Uh, you know, we've seen every every iteration, right? So so this is the first Spider-Verse is what you're proposing, Steve. Yeah, is... I immediately thought of Phil. This is how you got a taste of that kind of stuff. Like, ooh, Spidey with the fighting samurais and being it's, again it's all very frank miller-ish <laughs> but jostin breaks free and helps so it's spidey and jostin fighting and these pages here really are a stark difference from the earlier pages these look a lot more like marie severin's artwork than the earlier ones maybe the inker had to work more quickly and therefore more faithfully ink these pages or maybe Mooney only inked the first few and Marie did the rest but either way the figures the faces this is pure Severin here you know between the editor not having enough time to finish the footnotes on this something's going on and Andrew did you catch too some of those really Ditko inspired poses for Spidey yeah, I, I thought, like I said, for me, I, I felt there was a real charm to the interiors. It just, it didn't feel super Frank Miller-y, so it was one of yeah. those, like, weird, like, oh, great cover and a great inside, just not the same things. But yeah, I, li- I liked Spider-Man, again, he should be kind of twisted in weird position. He's muscular, but not 90s. Like, all those things are the great thing. And I liked having uh Justin with like using a chain to like bash the samurais and all that stuff in. And at this point, his gig is he's his powers are running down. So he has to, you know, use them sparingly type of thing. But he gets murdered and this is his last appearance, I believe, right guys? Wow, yeah. Hmm. And the spider light. Like anytime he has the belt light and things like that that we're just regular things turned up a notch you know it, it we all had little flashlights or whatever but it's super powerful and <laughs> stronger than a regular one yeah fun so he went to uh the same place uh, that uh mr faustus went went to they they were talking to each other saying hey i went on an airplane he says i drowned that's dr faustus to you yes exactly <laughs> he didn't go to evil medical school for <laughs> For nothing. Item. 
we interrupt this Marvel Noise podcast for up-to-minute coverage of The Trial of Venom. So the trial of the century, Steve, just the wrong century. That's the one we're in. <laughs> That's right. The trial of the 90s. There wasn't even that. Well, the, tr- the fictional trial of the 90s. In Spider-Man's special edition, The Trial of Venom, from October 1992, we get just a regular 22-page story, but written by Peter David, with art by Jim Craig, who has some memorable Fantastic Four-related what-ifs from that original run, and uh, he had a good run on Master of Kung Fu, he did the Marvel premiere with the 3D Man, and the Marvel 2-in-1 with the Thing in Moon Knight, where they fight Crossfire. Remember that one? Can I say I forgot about him, and I really enjoyed it? I get kind of a Frank Robbins over-exaggerated vibe that I know some people might be a little turned off by, but I was really vibing it. I'm like, oh, I forgot all about <laughs> Like, It's weird how you just read an issue, and you're like, because I don't think he's done a comic in a while. Um, I think he's been, you know, he, I think what was started in the seventies. So, you know, it's hard to, hard to keep going for 60, 70, 80 years drawing comics. A lot of the, um, what I want to compare it to like Stephen Platt esque, um, noodling on the figures that really animate them, um, distort them to an interesting, uh, reality uh visual reality is the inkers and that's dan and david day not gene sadly because he died 10 years previously like young like at like age 31 or something like that but they uh really do a lot of um textures and stuff on on and kind of uh morphing some of the uh structures of the bodies and stuff to give things a, a a wild look and yeah, I, I like I like the wildness, although I am a little disappointed in Kevin that he didn't have us do this as part of the Thunderbolts, uh-huh. an important cameo of Moonstone. <laughs> uh-huh. Also, well, this was a hard comic to acquire. So I, re- I remember my uh, one of my friends getting five copies and then he he gave some out because otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I was a little freaked out seeing like an ad or something for it and then i'm like what was i reading like web of spider-man or something and then it's like what do you mean the next issue is is a is a giveaway or you gotta send it away and then it's like not for foreigners so uh, (laughs) go back to where you came from (laughs) exactly and you're like wait how am i supposed to get this issue like this is this is you know but uh you know if you have friends that have connections in another country, then uh, and then they send you, I don't know if they had extra copies or whatever, and instead of sending you one copy, they sent you five. Like that seems like a lot of copies. <laughs> it's on the unlimited though, so today yeah. today your problems are solved. And yeah, kids nowadays will never know the struggle. <laughs> Two years later, this same team of Peter David, Jim Craig, and Dan and David Day in 1994 would do another Venom one-shot, The Incredible Hulk versus Venom, with Peter David writing, right? He's the Hulk guy, so that could be a good candidate for our next uh, Done in Ones feature. Gotta keep this team going. Although, <laughs> you know, I prefer a court theme for that one yeah. as well, Steve. Yeah. All right, then let's get to it. This one's, I thought it was fun, well-paced, and, uh, you know, it's got Matt Murdock, Daredevil's alter ego defending Eddie Brock in court for his crimes committed as Venom with Spider-Man as the defense's uh, like reluctant expert witness. I mean, come on. You didn't laugh, Steve. My favorite part has to be uh, Matt Murdock's going to set up a false equivalency by explaining that JJJ doesn't like Spider-Man and he's never tried to kill Spider-Man. <laughs> and Spider-Man should have said, He's a 98-year-old man. Of course he's... And I'm a superhero. He's not going to. But when he asked it, the other question, I was... 
Has he ever tried to kill you? I'm thinking the Spider Slayer, the Scorpion. <laughs> Dude, those <laughs> were the exact two things I thought of. I was like, the Spider Slayer, he totally tried to. And then, sure, he didn't try to kill him. He paid other people yeah, to try exactly. to kill him. <laughs> How's that any better? <laughs> yeah, he was over the stereo a parade. <laughs> I mean, I just, it just was so funny that he, does he try and kill you? Yeah, yeah, all the time. That was like the first few years of his existence. He was probably his greatest villain. He, Paid for and financed. (laughs) And he never wants to pay for the pictures. You know? Always leave the the paycheck. But the the premise gimmick is that uh, the symbiote has died. And poor Eddie's broken up and wants to turn over a new leaf. Yeah, why should he be responsible for what the Venom symbiote did if the Venom symbiote's dead now? I did like that there's a lots of guardsmen in this issue, and I always like, like the guardsmen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could have used a few more mandroids, though, Steve, to back them up. <laughs> so, you know, Spider-Man and Daredevil, they both know each other's secret identities, so they're playing the line of knowing, you know, who each other are in, in court and in their conversations, you know, as while they're patrolling and all that stuff. But it's a, um, you know, they really wrestle with it. Is Brock guilty of Venom's crimes or, uh, you know, is he not liable because they were something else when they were a combination? He's at the, you know, criminally insane or at the very least, um, uh, highly, um, you know, affected his decision making and everything is altered. So the the big twist is he wins. Uh, Not guilty. Nice job. All right. Rock. Now was the end of him. He learned his lesson. But he's still Venom. It was all a all a trick. The symbiote was hiding inside of him and just shed some dead cells and to make the dead symbiote that was laying in uh in eddie brock's cell there so then we get the tail end of the issue being daredevil and spidey fighting him well i liked how spidey tricked him by getting him angry and it's like if eddie had any self if it it was a good characterization of venom for peter david's forgetting about spider-man's complete history he does a good (laughs) job of like all all eddie had to do was just shut up and walk out but he couldn't nope and so that's what did him in. And uh, but I do love when he venomizes himself, judges robes, so he can <laughs> pass <laughs> <the judge. laughs> like, have fun with. Like this is where you can really have fun with your Mister Fantastic, Plastic Man, Venom type characters. Like just go for it, you know. There's still menace. He still has the uh, an impossible number of teeth that don't match and the tongue and everything. And of course, Daredevil comes out of the whole thing being like, I would defend him all over again, and I still think Eddie Brock's, uh, you know, innocent. Yeah. Well, that's because, you know, maybe he is. I don't know. No, but they trick him with this little thing that Spider-Man set up beforehand, which I thought was a nice little move. Because I do enjoy when the heroes sort of trash talk a lot kind of in a way you know what i mean when they're like yeah you'll never beat me you always lose and they really get into their face with him <laughs> and that's part of the eddie brock thing too right it throws off him noticing wait a minute why right next to the courthouse is there a cave or whatever you know what i mean like you don't <laughs> realize what's happening until it's too late because you're so busy uh, you know that that spider-man gets you so mad so angry and you want to eat his brain so bad <laughs> Arg! did you like that come on that was very charlie brown at the end guys when venom just has that panel where he's like <laughs> spidey got that football away from him and then it ends in classic daredevil the other thing i loved is he's got his shoulder all band like daredevil's always in bandages or whatever <laughs> and you know it was just the classic move of he used an item that was uh shown earlier in the issue and that makes the Moonstone uh, cameo actually uh, matter to the story because on the first page they're going through a a tour of the vault, the um, you know the super criminal prison of the time, and they show Moonstone hanging out 
on a towel in a bikini on the beach. Mm-hmm. And that's her reward for good behavior is they have some type of um, image uh, technology to make the uh, cells um, and the surrounding environment um, look like whatever they want. And um, that's what Spider-Man uses later in the issue to have them generate a, a system of caves that leads Venom right back to his cell before he knows what's happened. Well, five years later, we get Venom on Trial, a three-issue limited series that began in January 1997. This was the second of three Venom limited series that Larry Hama would write. Coming Each came a month after the last ended, so it was almost like a um, nine-issue series. The first one was Tooth and Claw with Wolverine. The second was this Venom on Trial with Spider-Man and Daredevil again. And then the third was License to Kill that established Venom's new status quo of the time. The art yeah, here is... I was long off these limited series by this point. I think I read to, like, to, to the third one, and I was just... And even though I was, you know, big into Venom, I was just like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. I went by the art teams pretty much of whether I want, you know what I mean? Like this was a funny time in Marvel where they were (laughs) bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the art here is by Josh Hood and Derek Fisher, the covers too. And, um, you know, it's uh, 90s art where there's just impossible leg musculature and it's just crazy. Eddie Brock's yeah, when I first saw the, the first few pages, it wasn't as crazy extreme, and I'm like, maybe the art isn't. On you, you get to that one page, and it's like, why is there like 25 muscles or whatever is happening on that leg? And Eddie's hair keeps changing length, and his face and bulk keeps changing. It's it's pretty rough in that respect, but. There is a story here, and it is fun to compare with that 92 one-shot. I think I would have noticed this was Larry Hama because it starts with a SWAT team taking him down with all the kind of <laughs> pseudo-military Larry Hama, G.I. Joe-esque stuff going on. And I'm like, yeah, this is what we want. All the, you know, tactical teams talking tactical and strategy and all that stuff to pin him down in a fun I agree with you, Kevin. It started out, I thought it was going to look different. In fact, yeah, I felt Venom was very classic at the beginning, too. Yeah. And then I felt each issue got maybe a little bit crazier and crazier. <laughs> but still, fun. Like, I was into it for the roller coaster nature of the. It's a. I, for me, this was a quick read. It was fun, but it wasn't yes. like agonizing over the pages to check out all the fiddly little bits there wasn't much fiddly little bits to agonize over that's for sure but as you said larry hama probably sat in an office sometime and said venom this is how i'd take him down i'd use sonic things and so that's what his swat team does they use sonic attacks to weaken him and weaken him and hold him at bay and in the first issue they also introduced the cast there's lieutenant clark who brock has a connection to he's been chasing after Venom for several limited series is now, but Eddie's uh, convinced that they're on the same side and he knows it, that kind of thing. He thinks he's a little sympathetic to Venom. There's the DA who's leading the charge and prosecuting the case, the leggy Gracia Hidalgo. There's Dr. Yao, who's developed a formula that when it's injected, it keeps the symbiotes dormant for a few hours. And there's another player, at least briefly, the Uber Plotter Bastion from the X books. Yeah, I just saw the silhouette, and I'm like, "Is that him?" And then I'm like, "Oh yeah, they might have miscolored him, but yep. he's there. He's connected to the government, and he's interested in Venom's incarceration. And with Bastion as his personal guard, is this operative that Venom knows is a secret agent." from the last limited series, Tooth and Claw. And this guy's playing it cool and seems to just be like gathering intel and wants Venom to keep quiet for now. 
The first issue ends with Matt Murdock getting the call to be Venom's public defender, with no reference to him having previously served in that capacity and won his case. And uh, Matt eagerly accepts. The second issue starts off with Matt suggesting that, you know, the obvious thing to do is to do the insanity plea. Because, right, it worked the first time, even though they're not referencing it. And Brock adamantly, vehemently rejects the idea, which is what a huge contrast to the first book, right? Yeah, it seemed like they wanted to give a little... Well, there's three issues instead of one, so I guess they want to slow roll this a little bit. But it is also that more edgy 90s because all his captors of Venom want to, like, kind of torture him a little bit. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And is that prison guard, the comedian from The Watchmen there? Uh, He really had that comedian vibe. But... uh... Eddie's also shocked that Matt would want to subpoena Spider-Man as their witness. I mean, even though he made a great witness the last time, right? Like they, but it just seems he's so shocked. What? Spider-Man? It's like, yeah, didn't you read the last one? (laughs) (laughs) And the prosecution star witness is Carnage. But, you know, with Dr. Yao's symbiote sedative injection. Yeah, that seems like a real. going to happen there. A real good idea, by the way, too. Yeah. Also, what kind of wit car like <laughs> I don't know. It's just so funny. They have the most over the top characters that they're gonna have and people are gonna just listen to them testifying. Oh, <laughs> well, at least Judas Traveler didn't show up. Oh god. There's also this whole bit about this mummified um uh official uh corpse found in the bell tower from amazing spider-man 300 that venom's being charged with the murder of and murdoch tears up carnage's testimony on cross-examination and shows that he's lying about it outside dr yao is trying to get into the courthouse and he's all in a rush and the guards aren't letting him in so spider-man helps him get in because his sedative is flawed a little adrenaline and it wears right off guys Seems like a big flaw that would have been exposed yeah. prior to this point. <laughs> well, and you know, in testing, all of the you know elements are controlled. The variables are, yeah. Anyway, the second issue ends with an all-out brawl in the courthouse between Venom, Spidey, and Carnage, all symbioted up. The third issue continues that all-out brawl with Daredevil joining in for good measure. The day gets one when Venom gets a syringe of the sedating serum and takes out Carnage and then surrenders to the judge. Can we say maybe on the cover of three putting Venom in the electric chair was a bit of a mislead? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but by this, by issue three, I don't know if they were under time crunches or what, but it's the craziest body proportions of all of them, I feel like. For sure. Just then, at the end, after Venom surrenders, and it's like, so what are we going to do? Still have this trial? or uh... And then that special agent dude who was with Bastion comes in, gives the judge some papers from the president, and takes Venom into custody, you know, but in cuffs, right? He's not stupid. They offer Venom amnesty if he'll be a government operative from, for them. It's like year one, Agent Venom. Yep. I always hey. wondered, especially when these things are so linked up, I'm like, there's like 25 limited series that he's in, and I'm like, just give him a book. But for whatever reason, you know, they can't give him a book. More number ones. But it's the 90s, too, so I don't know. It's just weird. <laughs> so It did seem like it had a pretty big shift in status quo to, like, shuttle it into a limited series. Yeah. But, uh, hey, you know, you gotta sell. It's nice that they put real things of consequence in a limited it makes the limited series more interesting to me to have them not just be some fine funny tale afterwards but this is i don't know there is some i will say this one probably has humor which i'm sure was intentional about how ridiculous the trial and how all the players are like well what are you gonna do man (laughs) 
the next series, the third Hannah written one, is the Venom License to Kill that has him, you know, as the government operative, which I totally forgot he had that status quo before the Flash Thompson version. Yeah, I'm waiting to Venom uh, Goldeneye. <laughs> but in, you know, in comparing the two series, having the Peter David written one, it really showed that, well, this story really could have been told in one issue, right? They didn't even have a trial in this one. At least they had, like, <laughs> deliberations and stuff in the other one. But, uh, yeah, I thought the first um, Spider-Man special with Venom's trial uh, ended up being the more uh, solid story that they really had no reason to go back to the well. And it's so funny that they use the same players again that it's uh, it just it was funny. <laughs> well, maybe they couldn't get a copy of the book either. Yeah, right? Well, <laughs> They're all in Canada. It's, just, it's yeah. sad that uh, Daredevil is just everybody's low. Like, whether it's criminal, <laughs> civil, landlord, tenant, like, whatever it is. They just ram old hornhead into the situation, so, which that, seems appropriate. That's and I guess, sh- you know, just... Spider-Man still sells. Although I would have liked to see maybe Punisher as a witness in the <laughs> You know, is it's all because the She-Hulk refused to change back into Jen <laughs> that they only have the one lawyer in the Marvel Universe. But then, uh, you know, once she starts practicing law as She-Hulk, yes. then, uh, then now there's two lawyers. And sometimes they even go up against each other. <laughs> all right. Enough silliness. With that, we bring another episode of Marvel Noise to a close. Thanks to both Kevin and Andrew for being here as always. And rallying the me to be here too next time it's episode 420 what could we do on this show with that as a theme we'll come up with something stay tuned true believers all right until editorial green lights another trial of venom and you know it would be cool if matt murdoch was his lawyer and spider-man <laughs> reluctantly had to testify make mine one later.